John chapter 19, 16b through 22. Uh, What a great opportunity that we have this morning as we have just observed the Lord's Supper, uh, reminded of the, the death of our Savior, and to now look at this text before us today as we see the crucifixion of Christ. So I'm going to read John 19, 16 through 22. I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help, and then we will look at this text to see what it has to say to us today. So John 19, would you hear now the word of the Lord? So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy towards us. What we have just read is too easily brushed over. And I ask God that you would help us to see the beauty of the cross. Christ in our stead, boring the wrath that we deserve. Help us, God. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the next few weeks, uh, we will be looking at the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ as we prepare for Easter Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in a special and unique way. And while we do this, I want to ensure that we rightly understand the significance of the cross of Christ. As I mentioned in our prayer, too often I believe that we quickly brush over the crucifixion. Uh, We too quickly make our way to the resurrection of Christ, which is monumental in the Christian life. But the crucifixion of Christ has a grand place. See, the cross is the crux of Christianity. It is the precipice, the, the, the greatest mountain top that you could ever reach of this gospel. The cross is the primary reason that Jesus Christ came to this earth so he could die for his people. And it is the turning point of human history. The Apostle Paul reminds us of his resolve to the Corinthians where he writes, 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He tells the Galatians, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The great apostle knew the irreplaceable centrality of the cross in his life, in his evangelism, and in his leadership. J.C. Ryle is helpful here. He writes, quote, a man must be right on this subject or he is lost forever. Heaven or hell, happiness or misery, life or death, blessing or cursing in the last day all hinges on the answer to this question. What do you think about the cross of Christ? And listen to me. Each of us, every person who has ever lived is forced to answer that question. We will be face to face with our creator one day and we will answer the question, what do we think of the cross? So we better know what our answer will be. We must ensure that we understand this doctrine of crucifixion and substitution and Christology, what Christ came to accomplish. And my prayer is that as we look at this section of Scripture, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit and written by the Apostle John, we will grow in our understanding of the glory and the goriness of the cross. It is a gruesome scene, but it is a glorious one indeed. Before we look at our text, it's important to note that John is the only gospel writer who was there at the foot of the cross. He was the only gospel writer who witnessed the crucifixion firsthand. And he writes this account about 60 years after he witnessed this tragedy. So, I mean, this has been etched in his mind for 60 years. I mean, six decades of remembering the scene that took place. And this is probably why he spends one-third of his gospel focus on the preparation for the crucifixion and the death and resurrection as a whole. If you recall, John excludes the birth account of Christ. He excludes the temptation of Christ. He excludes the Mount of Transfiguration, the Sermon on the Mount. There are no parables in John's gospel. It's as if John is making a beeline for the cross. He wants us to see the significance here. He wants us to understand that this is a great thing to which we must pause and ponder. See, John is majoring on the majors. He wants his reader to understand that there is significance and that the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, must be seen in this way. 
Now this brings us to our text. There are three points that I want to point out to us this morning that we will observe as we look at this scene. First, we will see perseverance modeled. Perseverance modeled. Look at verse 16 with me. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, if you recall, Pastor Gabe uh, brought to our attention last week as we looked at uh, the first part of chapter 19 that Pilate has done everything within his power to try to get himself out of this ordeal. He understands that who he has before him is a guiltless individual. This man is not guilty. Uh, Pilate understands this, but he has now been swayed by the pressures of the religious leaders. He's also been uh, persuaded by his own desires to, to keep some, some power and to ensure that he does not lose his grip and his role on the people. And so here he understands that he cannot escape this. He is going to move forward against his better judgment. We read that Pilate hands Jesus over. Now, handing Jesus over here means that he handed him over to the executioners. So, so they would then have their way with Jesus Christ. John tells us that they took Jesus. In other words, the Roman soldiers take Jesus away from the judgment seat toward the cross. But notice what John says here. He went out. See, no other criminal would go out in this way. Because of the fear of the torture ahead, they would put up as much resistance as they could. Uh, they would almost have to be forced towards the cross, kind of uh, whipped and driven like some cattle, herded along in a way that would, would push them towards their fate. But we read that our Savior goes out, that he heads to the cross. There was no coercion here. And like a strong soldier headed to battle, our Savior makes his way to his cross. Now this was prophesied some 700 years before. The prophet Isaiah writes in verse 7 of chapter 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, speaking of Christ, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Notice the language here, being led, not forced. He is led there by the sovereign hand of the Father. His own obedience, his active obedience, saying, I, I will go and I will face what is ahead. The prophet continues and writes, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus Christ didn't fight. He didn't resist. 
He didn't complain or call names. Instead, he willfully headed straight towards the cross as a final statement of active obedience here. Notice the text tells us that he bore his own cross. So as a part of punishment, each criminal would uh, have to carry the horizontal part of the cross on their back during the procession towards their execution. Uh, the synoptics remind us that uh, Simon was ordered to help Jesus carry the crossbar about halfway. Uh, this is likely because Jesus has, has just endured a harsher penalty, a beating that was greater than any other criminal had experienced. Remember, Pilate's trying to do many things to uh, avoid this death sentence on Christ. Pilate went above and beyond normal flogging in hopes that his cruelty would satisfy the anger and outrage of the Jewish leaders. Nevertheless, we see Jesus head toward his fate with persistence, perseverance, an unhindered commitment to achieve that which he came to the earth to accomplish, the redemption of his people. The path toward the cross was over a half mile long was known as the Via Dolorosa, and that's Latin for the way of sorrow. And thousands of people would be lined up on the path, watching the criminal head towards their fate. It was kind of like a parade for everyone to observe. And it was a way for the Roman government to tell the people, if you break our laws, this will be your fate also. It was a fear tactic, a way to impress upon the minds of the citizens that they are under the rule of Rome and that criminals, the worst of the worst, the rebellious, the insurrectionist would face this type of punishment should they speak out against their government. We read that they take him and he arrives at a place called Golgotha, the place of a skull. Now, we don't know exactly why it is called the place of a skull. Some speculate that it was because of the appearance of, of what it actually looked like. Some say it's because the place that it was a place where people died and uh, the skull and the bones and the aftermath of what uh, was to come from that death. And it doesn't really matter. The exact location of this place is uncertain even because of the way that uh, Jerusalem has grown and expanded. All we know is that verse 20 tells us that it was outside of this walls outside of the city. It was near some type of public road so that all who walked by could see the criminal dying. The vertical beam of the cross was already placed in the ground at this place. And upon arrival, the victim would be forced to lie on his back 
where his arms would be stretched out, not completely, but just enough so they could have some, some leeway and be able to move to, to allow the crucifixion to take longer so the, the torture could be greater. They would then either tie the hands of the criminal to this crossbar that they have just carried all this way, or they would nail nails in their hands. It would drive them in, and we know that later readings tell us that this was the fate of our Savior. That after carrying that wooded beam on his lacerated back that had been destroyed to the visual eye. The splinters driving in and then the laying on the wood and the spikes driven in his hand. What a scene. What thoughts must be running through the mind of Christ, the humanity of Christ here. Point of application I want us to make before we move on is that every true believer must also carry their cross. We must carry our cross if we are to be called Christians. Matthew 16, 24 reminds us of this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, our cross is a cross of self-denial. It is a cross of submission to the lordship of Christ. It is an emblem of death. Death to self, death to the world, death to our own sinful desires. We must bear our cross. We must say, I will follow my Savior and model the perseverance of this life, trusting the Spirit to work and to bring to fruition that which was started in me, but I will work and I will aim as if it depended solely on myself. We strive, we toil, we make war on sin, we carry our cross, we model our Savior here. It's also an emblem of death to self, but being alive in Christ. It's alive to obedience to God. So, so it's not that we do this from our own will. It's that God changes us and changes our desires. And we want the things that we didn't want before. We want to be more Christ-like. We welcome sanctification. Too many Christians think differently these days. They, they think that, 
we can have the world in one hand and the cross in another. They think that we can have the world and be in the world and neglect the cross of Christ, the cross of obedience, the cross of putting away the old and putting on the new. May that not be said about us, brothers and sisters. May we be a people who allow the things of this world to be so minimal. May we be a people who look to the things of this world as the things on the outside, the outskirts, because our eyes are so focused on the cross. Second, we see there's pain endured. Pain endured. Verse 18 tells us that there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Now, this doesn't go into much detail because the crucifixion was so well known in its day that none of the gospel writers really feel as if they must tell too much detail about what happens in the crucifixion account. Now, the Persians had created crucifixion. It was picked up by the uh, Carthaginians. Uh, Other nations had adopted this, but Rome had perfected it. They had developed a way to bring you right to the edge of death and suspend you there. Just hold you, just waiting, pleading for the torture to end. The Greek philosopher Cicero called crucifixion a most cruel and disgusting punishment. It was the greatest means of torture you could imagine. Listen to one historian's description. Quote, death by crucifixion seems to include all the pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, Traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuous torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. He goes on and he writes, one thing is clear. The first century executions were not like the modern ones, for they did not seek a quick, painless death or the preservation of any measure of dignity for the criminal. On the contrary, they sought an agonizing torture that completely humiliated him. And it is important that we understand this. 
for it helps us to realize the agony of Christ's death. Let that sink in for a minute. Ponder for a moment the torture that was endured. The most significant part is that it should have been us. It should have been you, and it should have been me. Peter reminds us of this in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is substitution here. He took our place. He dies the death, endures the torment, the torture, the agony that we deserve. But as much as the physical pain should be recognized, friends, the spiritual pain is far greater. Far greater. We all know the realities of physical pain and suffering. We've all hurt ourselves from time to time. But we know that emotional and spiritual pain is a far greater Wait, it, it strikes deeper than the physical. When someone hurts us, when relationships are broken, when things don't work out and we, we can't seem to, to, the darkness just won't lift from us because we, we feel the weight of the world emotionally, depression, anxiety, the spiritual anguish that many of us deal with. For Jesus Christ, the worst part of all of this was the fact that he spiritually suffered. He was the one who knew no sin. He was righteous. He had never had a, an ill thought much less in ill action. He had never had any flaws in his relationship with God the Father. There was always perfect unity, always a perfect relationship. In all of eternity, there never existed a time when the triune God had one inkling of frustration or tension in the relationship. Perfection forever. But here, for a moment, for a moment in history, Jesus Christ bears the, the wrath that our sins deserve. He, he bears the righteous, justified wrath of God the Father for the sins of his people. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 is helpful here. You can turn there if you want, but let me read this for us. Yet 
It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of the soul, he shall see and be satisfied. But his knowledge shall see the righteous one, Jesus Christ here, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. Listen further. The prophet says, speaking for the Lord, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul, speaking of Christ, to death and was numbered with the transgressors. This is where we see Jesus uh, being in between two other criminals. He's numbered with those transgressors publicly. Enduring the worst of the worst. But he makes intercessions for the transgressors. His death in our place. This is the great pain that was endured. The pain of absorbing the holy, righteous wrath of God the Father for the sins of rebels, of transgressors. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. Friends, do you understand the great length of pain that was endured on your behalf? The great exchange His death for your pardon. His life for your freedom. See, we move from rebel to righteous, from foe to friend, from enemy to family because of Christ. Third, we see his power proclaimed. His power proclaimed. Verse 19 says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Verse 22 tells us, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So it was common practice for uh, the charges of the criminal that was being executed uh, to be written on a, a sign, a placard, and someone would carry this sign in front of them as they were paraded through the city. 
so everyone would see what the charge was that brought them to this point. And then when they were on that cross, the placard was hung above their head, sometimes wore on their neck. And it would further communicate to those that were watching that this is a significant charge. And if you do this, this will be your fate. And Pilate here writes something very significant. Now, Pilate isn't doing this uh, because he, he wants to make a proclamation of the power of Christ. He's doing this to try to humiliate the Jews. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Pilate is frustrated that the Jews have kind of forced his hand here. And so this is a way that he can humiliate or at least try to humiliate the Jewish leaders. It's like, here's their king. He's on a cross. He's dying. The king of the Jews. It's a spiteful action. It's a way of getting back at the Jews here. And notice he puts uh, from Nazareth. If you remember, uh, scriptures told us that uh, nothing good comes from Nazareth. It was the slums. So this is a, a further a punctuation of what he's trying to get across. Notice he writes in all three languages of the day. Uh, Aramaic or uh, Hebrew and Aramaic would have been very closely aligned. Uh, this would have been the common language of Judea. Uh, it would have been the language of religion. He also writes in Latin, which would have been the language of the army and kind of the politics and power of the day. He writes it in Greek, which would have been the language of the empire, the culture of their day and age. But the point is this. This was a statement to the watching world. But not in the way that Pilate planned. There's an idea among scholars that this is another fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 96.10 says this. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So this is thought of as Christ reigns from the tree. It is a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty from all aspects of the crucifixion. That God is at work in and through the evil work of man. He reigns from the tree. See, little did Pilate know that absolutely Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. He's the king of all. Philippians, we read that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, Pilate thinks he's at work here, but he's not. God is at work. God is working in and through this to bring glory to his 
name. A couple of closing applications that we gain from this passage. One, here we see God's hatred of sin. God's hatred of sin. Listen, God hates sin so much that he poured out his wrath on his son. Psalm 5-4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Psalm 5-5 tells us, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. It's a false notion that's spread rampantly in evangelicalism that says that God uh, hates the sin but loves the sinner. And on the, the surface, it sounds right, but Scripture would tell us that that is wrong. Yes, God loves the world. Yes, God has a special love for his people. But Scripture tells us that while we are opposed to God, not in Christ, that God abhors the sin and the sinner engaging in that. God cannot stand with sinners. Isaiah 59 2 says that, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that no one he can hear. Friend, if you are in here today and you are not in Christ, let me urge you, repent and believe. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ and Christ alone. When you are outside of Christ, you are an enemy of God. He is opposed to you and your sinfulness, but he has made a way in Christ, in Christ alone. And if, if you were hearing this to this morning for the, for the first time, let me invite you to, to call out to God. Cry out to him. Put your faith, your trust in Jesus. Allow the Lord to change you. Restore your soul. Move you. I pray that that is not lost on anyone here today. Second, we notice here God's love for his people. So while God hates sin, he despises sin. He cannot be close to sin. There's separation between all who are sinners apart from Christ. But God's great love for his people is so evident here. See, God goes to great lengths to save his people. C.S. Lewis once wrote, it costs nothing so far as we know to create nice things, but to convert 
rebellious wills costs Christ's crucifixion. See, in order to redeem his people, to, to draw us to him, to make a way for us to have a restored relationship with our creator, with our father, God went to great lengths. And so while we see the, the wickedness of the cross, may we also see the beauty. This is where wickedness and joy and love perfectly come together. The harmony here of God's wrath and his love on display is something we cannot miss. His wrath against sin, but his love for his people. He would take his own son, that God himself would come to this earth and accomplish all that we cannot accomplish. Live a perfect life without sin and then die a death that we deserve, and then would be raised again, and then is now seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you. Believer, do you understand that Christ right now in this moment is making intercession for you? Your bad thoughts, your evil deeds. God is, Christ is interceding on your behalf. The Holy Spirit is working in you. Ephesians tells us that we have been sealed as his people. That he will hold us and keep us. Not one will be snatched from his hand. God does not grow to the great lengths of this to then let you fall, my brothers and sisters. He will hold you. He will keep you. Do you understand the great love of God? Maybe you've never understood your great rebellion. And when we place our great rebellion on the table of God's great love, it, it, it goes, it disappears. He remembers our sins no more. For as far as the east is from the west, we are forgiven, friends. And third, we see in that same sense the faithfulness of God here. The faithfulness of God. Sinclair Ferguson writes, quote, when you look at the cross, what do you see? You see God's awesome faithfulness. Nothing, not even the instinct to spare his own son will turn him back from keeping his word. See, if you recall in the Old Testament, we were told that, that God would have a people for himself. He tells Abraham, there will be many nations. You will have many sons and daughters. Your family will be as countless as the stars in the sky. Many will be brought to salvation. He promised God Never fails, friends. His faithfulness is forever. I mean, may we look at the cross and see this. That God goes to great lengths to ensure not just that, that we are saved, but that his name is not defamed. See, God is not a liar. 
All that he has said will come true, brothers and sisters. So what do we do? We need to know God. We must be in our word. We must put aside the things of this world, turn off the TV, get off the screens, and get in our word so we know this God who has made a covenant with us through Christ and Christ alone. What else do we have? See, this is his promise to us, that because of the death of Christ, we will not be lost. His faithfulness, his promise. Kids, listen, do not wait. Do not wait until you get to some magic age when, when you then desire to, to learn about God. Obey your parents. Obey the word of God. See the cross of Christ. I pray that my kids have the, the most boring worldly testimony ever. That they just never think of a day where they didn't know the love of God for them. That they didn't know that there was a great God. I pray that for all of the children in our church. They would see the love of Christ. They would see their need for a Savior. And they would call on that Savior from now until eternity. Teens. Young adults in this room, stand firm. I can't imagine what it's like being a, a teenager in today's age. The constant just bombardment of ideas and constant access to uh, thoughts influencers, and just so many things that bombard our minds. Listen, be people of the word. Know the word. Trust the word. Live the word. Find brothers and sisters around you that are going to encourage you to do these things. And those that distract you and that, that pull you in and cause you to stumble, cut those relationships off. Do not waste your days. Stand firm in the words of Christ now. For all that are left my brothers and sisters, the parents, the singles, the, those senior saints in this gathering. May you look back on your life and remember all that God has brought you through. And may you trust that as you head towards the end of our days here, as we continue to strive, toil, labor in this world, may we be a people that never retire from, from this, 
from following Christ, from bearing our cross, from telling the world of the Savior who died so that they could be set free. May we never grow tired. May we trust that our labors are never in vain. May we proclaim the truth of Christ to our family, our friends, our neighbors, our grandchildren, whoever it may be. May we choose to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Let us pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. Christ, we, we acknowledge that you have bore the wrath we deserve, the physical, the spiritual, the torment, heartache. He took it for us. Oh God, would we be a people that live for you. Spirit, you have sealed us. You're with us. May we be even greater, have a greater awareness we read your word, Lord, would you allow it to come alive? Would it be impressed upon our hearts? Would you give us the renewal of our minds? Would you help our unbelief? Thank you, God. Thank you that you have made a way. And thank you, God, that you are faithful and you will never let us go. We love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.